Good afternoon and welcome to this week's edition of Navara, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm James Butler and joining me in the studio this week is Matthew Beaumont, who is Senior Lecturer in English at University College London and author of a new book, Nightwalking, A Nocturnal History of London, which takes the figure of the Nightwalker as a point of departure for an exploration of the shadow side of the city and those who walk its streets at night. Matthew, welcome to the show. Uh, listeners much. can join in discussion of today's topic on the hashtag Novara FM and of course follow us on an ever-expanding variety of social media platforms to idle and waste away your time in a vaguely productive and beneficial manner. Apologies if at any point in the show today my voice gives out as I've been somewhat under the weather for the past week. I'll try to refrain from coughing throughout the show. Actors, jesters, smooth-skinned lads, moors, flatterers, pretty boys, effeminates, pederasts, singing and dancing girls, quacks, belly dancers, sorceresses, extortioners, night walkers, magicians, mimes, beggars, buffoons. If you do not want to live with evildoers, do not live in London. So goes Richard of Devizes' catalogues of the evils one might encounter in London in the 12th century in one of the quotations with which you open the book identifying the Nightwalker as first a legal category. Um, so I guess a good point to start is what led to your interest in, in this figure of the Nightwalker? Well, I suppose I've always been interested in walking in London at night because one encounters a completely different kind of city to the, to the, to the city one, one sees in, in the daytime when the, the flow of commuters and commodities and the, the rhythms of one daily, one's daily life die away. And the city sort of settles down to a different rhythm at night. Uh, one encounters a, a quite different kind of city, as I, as I say. Um, and so there was that, my interest in walking at night. There was also the fact that over years, really, teaching English literature uh, at UCL in particular, I discovered that the writers I was most interested in were ones who in very sort of marginal and not necessarily highly publicised way had inhabited the city streets at night and had there looked for both an alternative kind of city like I did but also for a different kind of self. So I grew interested in this sort of counter canon or this hidden canon um, that I began to detect and that I felt that no one else had really identified as such. And so you find, I mean, the, 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 the point where the book starts is uh, really the very origins of this figure as a, a sort of, you know, uh, one that appears uh, as suspect, as a breaker of the law, as, um, yeah, as the kind of person you'll be picked up by a night watchman. Um, maybe you can tell us a, a little about what the city, the medieval city, would have been like to walk around at night, what, what, what risks... Um, one encountered and uh, how one was supposed to comport oneself. Yeah, um, let me just yeah quickly explain the legal context for that, which you've alluded to already. Uh, I mean, the Nightwalker existed before the late 13th century in, in common law, but it was in 1285 uh, that Edward I introduced a specific statute, the Nightwalker statute, so-called, uh, which, which criminalised, formally criminalised, people who, who walked about the streets at, at night. And in those days, and for three or four centuries probably, it was ungendered. It wasn't gender-specific, that category, that legal category of the night walker. In fact, if anything, there were more men than than women who were picked up and, and, and uh, incarcerated as night walkers. It was only later on that night walking became entangled with street walking and, and, and the notion of the or the concept of the street walker began to sort of supersede that of the of the night walker 
So Nightwalkers in the Middle Ages, where the book starts, as you say, were um, were usually vagrants, if not sex workers. Uh, they were itinerants. They were migrants from the countryside. They were the homeless of the Middle Ages. And the kind of city they inhabited was a very dark one, uh, in fact. I mean, only the... Uh, you know, the most sort of populous and uh, most salubrious areas of the walled, the old walled city were lit in the evening, in the early hours of the dark. Um, as it were, bourgeois householders had to had to light lamps or lamps outside their houses. But elsewhere, it was it was plunged into a pretty Stygian gloom. That made it easier, of course, for vagrants to evade the uh, surveillance of, of night watchmen. But it also made for a pretty uncomfortable uh, experience at night. I mean, there was, uh, uh, you know, there was, there was uh, you know, not much comfort to be derived from the streets, not least because there weren't streets mm. as such. There was, there was a lot of mud. Um, there were, you know, the best very uneven forms of paving. There might be bulks, in other words, sort of uh, uh, sloping constructions for displaying goods outside shops. Um, and in markets, but there was really not much protection against the elements. And indeed, the elements at the time were regarded rather differently to how we think of them now. So the nighttime air in the Middle Ages was thought to be inherently poisonous, noxious, toxic. Um, it was thought to be bad for one. Yeah, um, it's visible even this early on um, that there are sort of striations of class among night walkers, um, and and I, I think I recall there is a there was a piece of advice that if you're going to walk around at night, affect an upper class accent as or, or sound as posh as you could, because then uh, the, the the night watch wouldn't pick you up. Um, so so you know I, I have this extraordinary image of you know these these. You know, the upper class sort of striding around with lit torches sort of in, in front of them. Uh, and yet around them, perhaps, there are these uh, uh, rather uh, less well-defined figures uh, who are sort of skulking around in the night. And, and so that's, you know, that, that, that seems to me the, the image that really starts the book. And, uh, and in, in one way, it, it seems to me that that, that, that basic image is, is something that, that persists throughout, sort of, uh, throughout the, 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 the book as a whole and throughout the, this sort of canon of authors. Um, I, I guess you know, one of, the, one of the, the, the extensions of this is really to do with time and, and the way we think about time because it, you know, one, of the, one of the things that, that struck me is that there was a curfew uh, during this period. There was a, a you know, very clear and very sort of legally binding curfew. Um, I, I hadn't. I actually hadn't realised this, um, but but uh, you know, it struck me as, as uh, connected uh, to to the sense that really I mean, it starts to happen in the medieval period that that you begin uh, to have through Europe a, a, a systematically measured time. So. Um, you know, the, the night is now very clearly demarcated, and you can set a curfew at the, the ringing of a public and communal bell. So there, you know, the sense that that you know one is infringing on a community, and there is something deeply suspect uh, and and almost uh, uh, you know, uh, anti-communal about being about being out at night. Yeah, I mean, can I pick up on a couple of things you said there? I mean, first of all, you're absolutely right about the class divided nature of the night and the class divisions between the inhabitants of the night in the Middle Ages. There is a kind of caste. There are arguably three different main archetypes who walk at night in the Middle Ages and it persists beyond that too. The passage you're 
referring to is, I think, from Thomas Decker, who's brilliantly witty and acerbic about about the inhabitants of the night. And he, as you rightly say, he says that if you're uh, if you're out at night, uh, you should imitate an upper class accent. You should appear to pretend to be addressing uh, Sir Henry this or uh, Lord Clarence that in order to give the night watchman the impression that you're uh, that you're roistering. So that's one of the categories that inhabits the night. That's the privileged category that's effectively largely immune to to the law, the roisterer, as I as I call him. And it is male, usually. Uh, In other words, an upper-class male walker who's out to enjoy the night, uh, an early precursor, if you like, of someone who enjoys nightlife in the city. This is a time before nightlife as such uh, exists in the city. And, you know, they might be gambling, they might be drinking, they might be simply causing trouble. So there are various relatively well-publicised cases of aristocrats who, uh, you know, uh, destroy merchants' buildings because they feel threatened by the rise of this emergent class in the city, for example. And they they are largely immune to the law. Uh, They often made deals with night watchmen. They, in any case, often had a, a retinue about them, carried torches, had servants with them. So they were they were relatively well protected. Then there were the prostitutes and the common night walker this category that emerges in the in the legal language of the late 12th century late 13th century um, and they of course were very different and they were far from immune from the law and from the reach of the of the night watchman um, some of them the the more savvy criminally savvy ones might make deals with uh, with with the night watchmen the night watchmen themselves of course who were a fourth category that inhabited the streets of the medieval city at night were themselves extremely ambiguous figures they were not anything like the police force that replaces them in the early 19th century but the night watchman lasts right up until that point as the as the principal means of policing the city they weren't in any way professionalised. They were often from the the lowest social classes, and were, you know there wasn't much to distinguish them from vagrants. In in many cases, they wore extremely ragged clothes. They couldn't protect themselves from the cold very well. They often drank. They often used and uh, prostitutes and exploited their position in order to abuse prostitutes. They made deals. They fenced goods. This, that, and the other. So they were very ambiguous figures who were closer, if you like, to the to the to the night, common night walkers than they were to the. Um, to the roisterers, to these, the aristocratic night, night walkers. The, um, it sort of struck me while reading, in terms of the development of this figure of, of, of the night walker, someone who's sort of walking around uh, you know, the city at night, that really, uh, with, with the sort of uh, medieval examples you cite, though, that position of being a person who walks around at, at night in the city is not really occupied by any of the, the, the authors you cite. I mean, I imagine Chaucer probably did at some point. It seems like the kind of thing he would have done. Um, but... Uh, so I, I guess one of the, the ways to talk about the, the, the temporal span of this is, is, is to ask this. Um, at what point does, does it turn over in literature, in the, in the sort of uh, canon that you're tracing, uh, at what point does it turn over into being a sort of subject position that's occupied um, by the writer uh, and, and is a, you know, part of a practice almost? It's a very good question. It's quite hard to answer precisely. Uh, the, the law that criminalises the common night walker 
begins to fall into desuetude probably sometime in the in the 17th 18th century perhaps the most convenient way of dating it although it is slightly speculative um, as with all processes of decriminalization i suppose um, is is by thinking about the the point at which public lighting was introduced in in london at night which wasn't until the late 17th century london was slightly later than paris and various other european cities it happened in the in the 1680s um, from that time on something like a nightlife begins to emerge and the kind of commercial city that's so characteristic of the 18th century which involves uh, lighting shops in the early evening so that the middle classes can consume um, after work uh, so that women can consume at the end of the day and buy products commodities etc that 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 all starts to emerge in in the late 17th early 18th century and really completely redefines the city and there are wonderful descriptions particularly by foreigners who are staggered by the lights on Oxford Street and the amount of traffic even after mm. after dark um, so by that time the curfew that you referred to earlier which had existed from the late 11th century it was introduced by William the first has has fallen completely out of use but my argument I suppose is that a kind of moral curfew persists, even in this emergent culture of, uh, of consumer capitalism, as we might call it ret retrospectively. And in that context, the various bohemian poets, writers, artists, it's my claim, uh, adopt some of the characteristics of the vagrant common Nightwalker that's that's preceded them, and express a certain solidarity with the homeless, the dispossessed, the the damned of the of the city, if you like, by going out into the streets at at night. This is partly a matter of necessity, not just of choice. It's not just a question of establishing solidarity with the with the uh, with the oppressed. A lot of them. Uh, inhabiting Grub Street or the surrounding areas were themselves extremely poor and had experienced something like homelessness themselves. So the nighttime city, the city that wasn't projecting this triumphalist image of being a you know, great commercial and cultural centre um, was, was something they were, uh, you know, they, they were very much denizens of themselves. And I think they, but they also to some extent liked slumming it because of the, the the different grasp it gave them of this emergent culture, which in some ways they were recoiling from because they'd been marginalised by it. So I guess we have this this picture of these this emergent sort of writer. One is a professional, right, which is in, in terms of the the, uh, the rise of Grub Street, and uh, in terms of that period. So you have a, a sort of hack writer, really. Um, I guess sort of uh, arising at this time, uh, and who is nonetheless sort of a somewhat marginal figure, uh, and sort of uh, almost moving between those two worlds, between sort of the day and the night. Um, I guess I mean. I suppose if we're, we're talking the 18th century, the, one of the things that that, that, I, that you refer to briefly in the book and uh, and, and which has always interested me uh, is uh, the passing of the Black Act in 1723, which is um, a really really violent piece of legislation. It uh, decrees uh, a death sentence for all sorts of rather trivial offences against property generally, uh, including things like um, you know, stealing things at night and going out at night with one's face blacked and, and, and things like that. Um, <coughs> 
the first cough of the show there. Um, so so we, we have this sort of uh, response in law to, to something that must have been going on at the time, right? So there must have been... I, I assume it's not just a, f- a function of paranoia, and certainly people were killed, um, and, you know, under under the force of the act. So, so you know, as always, the, the law tells us that there is something going on here, and that there is this sort of, uh, you know, economy is the wrong word word for it, but sort of some sort of night culture um, of people who are, are excluded from this sort of rising mercantile city. Um, so we have that on the one hand, and I, I suppose on the other, uh, we have a, a kind of growing awareness of. of the relationship, the strange relationship between the town and the city, the town and the country, um, which of course is uh, you know what um, uh, William Cooper says in, in the task: you know, uh, God made the country and man made the town. So there's already something sort of somewhat like artificial and, and rather suspect, certainly for someone like Cooper, um, in 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 sort of the, the town itself, and certainly I would imagine after dark, uh, even 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 rather more. Uh, 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 dissolute. Um, so, so I guess my question is is, is this: um, you know, How does this sort of nighttime economy, this nighttime culture, seep through into into what you're tracing in, in in the literature of the period? Where where do we see it? How does it arise? And what does it? What's what's the impulsion that drives people out you know, out of their house at night? Um, it's a very good question. I mean, I think it is partly a a mode of resistance, in fact, to to the culture of uh, and indeed the fetish of work and of labour that has been such a characteristic of the you know the the, the sort of Protestant and increasingly capitalistic uh, disposition of society from the end of the Middle Ages on. Um, so, you know, that culture is really all about treating the night as a means of uh, replenishing the body for the next day's labour. So there's, there's a diurnal economic regime, if you like. Um, I mean, the, there are complications and, and contradictions within that broader picture at the end of the Middle Ages and in the, in the early modern period. So, for example, that you know, the Counter-Reformation installs the night time as a you know through people like St John of the Cross and and other mystics as a as a site of sort of mystical self discovery of, of a communing with god etc um that's a rather different different picture but you know within this broader context which i identify with with the emergence of capitalism in its agrarian and then its urban and 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 eventually its in, in industrial form um being out at night when everyone else is sleeping in order to regenerate themselves and prepare for the next working day, is is inherently rebellious. Um, so, you know, going back to your point about the the black hats, the distinction, the the, the Cooper point about the, uh, the distinction between the city and, and the country. Um, the city at night is is both yes, in Cooper's terms, a more the most corrupt manifestation of the city of this culture of civilization of a man-made world rather than a god-made world um it's the it's it's where all the you know the corruption is really separating vagrancy prostitution gambling etc etc but it's also for some of these grub street poets say who go out into the streets at night it's it's where 
the city and the, and, and the hypocrisies of civilization get stripped away and suddenly you can begin to encounter something more like the truth, um, if, if that makes sense. Um, the, the, the truth of the self as well as the, as well as the truth of the city. So, you know, there's an almost pastoral strain actually to some of the descriptions of the of the city at night by people like Oliver Goldsmith um, they describe it you know this this lunar landscape as as the true essence of of the city with its strange scattered uh, you know oppressed population of, of homeless people it's um, it's <coughs> it's striking to me that there, there is um, a process which um, and, and I found this reading Raymond Williams recently, um, who has consistently challenged the sort of preconceptions that, as someone who grew up in a city, has about the countryside and the history of the relationship between uh, the city and the country. Um, he makes the point that, that you know, the, the, the acts of enclosure and uh, the acts of proletarianization, acts of primitive accumulation, were so so extensive in, in in England and so widely used to replenish the populations of the city um, that one can't actually really talk about an English peasantry at all. And and, and I had this thought in mind when you you talk in sort of chapters about the, uh, the sort of development of a sort of uh, romantic uh, relationship between uh, you know, uh, someone like John Clare, or you know, Clare's probably not the best example, in fact, uh, but certainly someone like Coleridge, um, and, and their relation to the country, which is very much a kind of uh, you know, it's already sort of hypostasized and you know not quite uh, uh, wild, and so there's always it seems to me something of a, a, a false opposition there. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess that is there a sense in which in this period the, the you know uh, the relationship between the, the the country and the city becomes indistinct at night, uh, and you, you have these people sort of wandering in you know out of the city at night, uh, and certainly and certainly during the Romantic period. Um, so I, I guess you know it's one of the, the things that did strike me in, in the book was that it actually has quite a, a lengthy section where it's not concerned with the city at all, but but is in fact about uh, you know the walks in the country at night, which is a, a far less determinate kind of walking. Yeah, I hadn't intended to write about the, the countryside at night at all, at least not, not in this book. I think it's a really interesting area. Um, but you know, the focus was meant to be pretty much metro, metrocentric in this book. But I found that by an inevitable logic in trying to understand how romantics like De Quincey and post-romantics like Dickens uh, Encountered the the city at night. I had to I had to think about how how other romantics, um, how Wordsworth and Coleridge, etc., had, um, had had thought about the night. And it seemed to me that that their interest in the night as an alternative space, as well as an alternative temporality, um, had had not really been sufficiently understood in previous literary or, 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 or cultural histories. And when I reread you know, the Prelude, for example, I realised that there were some key passages, you know, absolutely crucial epiphanic moments which took place at night where Wordsworth, um, who, you know, didn't do much night walking, I don't think, in London, um, although obviously there are important poems set at, at dawn, um, had had been out on the roads at night and or indeed out on the mountains at night and had and had really 
sort of come to a new understanding of what his whole romantic project was and his relationship with nature was. <coughs> and related to that, I suppose, was the fact that it was at night too that he had some fairly words with in particular had some fairly important encounters with vagrants on the roads um and so it turned out that you know that the the presence of vagrants in the city was of course related to the presence and the movement of of an itinerant population which fluctuated um you know in relation to the shifts and and recessions of the economy uh and and in terms of the sort of patterns of warfare of the time so the the city <coughs> vagrants in the city and country side were were of course you know part of the same mobile population and uh it turned out that yeah that the romantics had had both had important meetings with them had in a sense mimicked or emulated them so you know Coleridge go, going on his walking tour in Wales and sort of dressing in peasant clothing inverted commas and uh, you know uh, sort of boasting about his strange pantisocratic uh, you know democratic system in <coughs> pubs and uh, all that kind of thing it seemed to me to be part of the same story about the emergence of this new romantic subject that define themselves in relation to notions of vagrancy and and the night so there is um uh particularly in this this relationship to vagrants it, it, one of the things that <coughs> was really a um a revelation for me in the book as someone who's who had read thomas de quincey um who's the author of uh confessions of an english opium eater um it, you know many years ago i read it and i kind of hadn't clocked how how kind of awful Thomas De Quincey is in a lot of ways, um, and, and particularly this this relationship to other uh, inhabitants of the night, other denizens of the night, um, some of whom get probably rolled up into this single figure of a, a young girl. Um, but but in particular, his sort of you know the the sense that he has that he is separate from uh, and and uh, uh, you know frankly rather better than um, the rest of the people in the night while also trying to inhabit that space at the same time and i i wonder the way in which this sort of continues um you know or, or runs as a fault line through all of this literature um i mean inevitably of course when you're reading literature you're reading the records of people who had you know, access to print and various things like that but <laughs> Certainly, with with this stuff in particular, it seems that there is a really very strong fault line in, in between sort of the observer and the writer, uh, you know, that kind of night walker and the other inhabitants of the night. Yeah, I think you put it very well in in relation to De Quincey, who who was a, a nasty little Tory, <laughs> really, um, and whose attitude to the other, you know, itinerant people on the on the streets at, at night in London in the early. 19th century um, was pretty repulsive um, I mean he was really quite dehumanising in in some of his descriptions of, of, of the people he encountered the flip side of that though is this bizarre inflatedly sentimental uh, adoration of the prostitute called Anne whose, whose identity is a bit mysterious I mean it's possible she didn't even exist as such and that she was a sort of amalgam of various prostitutes he met but his sexual politics and his and his, as it were, party political politics um, get all, get strangely tangled up in this dialectic, um, which involves you know being being disgusted by vagrants at the same time worshipping uh, this. 
paragon of a, of a, of a prostitute, Anne. Um, so, yeah, he, he's a peculiarly complicated case. But, you know, going back for centuries is this important distinction, I think, but a distinction gets complicated in, in all sorts of interesting ways between the moralists who inhabit the streets at night and those who are somehow kind of corrupt or, uh, you know, sort of complicit with the the criminality of the night. So uh, I make a distinction, sort of distinction in nomenclature between noctambulants and noctivigants. Noctivigants are the common night walkers. The word noctivigant was used in the Middle Ages to describe common night walkers, vagrants and prostitutes. And the noctambulants are these uh, sort of middle class or, or upper class perambulators in the city at night who often have a, have a, a moral vocation at, at heart and who go out into the streets in order to save prostitutes or to, to police the streets in some way, you know, whether from some benign or, or rather aggressive motivations. But the, the point is that, you know, they... They do get quite tangled up, these identities, and, you know, noctambulants are often morally rather dubious themselves and take an almost pornographic delight in the, in the, in the criminal goings-on of, of the night. Um, so De Quincey's quite an interesting point of convergence between these two traditions, in a way. Um, he's got some of the moral outrage of the noctambulant of the previous centuries, um, but he also inhabits the, the social position at this time when he was young, um, had no money, um, was effectively homeless or was squatting in a, in a house in, in Soho. Um, in, in that respect, he, he, was, he was very much like one of the noctivigants. It's... Um I suppose one of the the uh, uh, the thing that sort of strikes me is, is, is the person who's almost the opposite of, of De Quincey in this sense. Um, you know, he certainly had no fortune that he was going to come into is uh, William Blake. Um, and now I think one of the the, the uh, real revelations for me is how much Blake's sort of prophetic works um, depended on his sort of experiences of London in particular and the sort of crowds of London as well. Um, and and here there are, there are two things. One is the, the um, his participation in or uh, you know, his, his finding himself as part of the Gordon riots, um, which involved the destruction of Newgate Prison, um, and his uh, encounters with Albion's fatal tree, um, the, the hanging post at Tyburn, Tyburn pronounce it um and so it, it it really astonished me that you know that there are these two very very different writers you know relating to the city really really very differently and yet you managed to bring them into a sort of continuum um certainly of, of some kind and perhaps you could say a little bit about blake's relationship to the city yeah i mean blake blake's so i mean he's absolutely <laughs> wonderful and i you know and i'd, I'd never read as much Blake as I did, and I'd certainly never read as much of the prophetic books as I did as when I was researching and, and, and reading for this book. And, and like anyone who spends a lot of time with Blake and immerses themselves in him, you go a bit mad and, and you start to, you know, discover an almost sort of a cultist, uh, almost a cultist connections across, across his work. So I was, I was constantly worried that I was, that I was inventing an obsession with the night in Blake simply because I was projecting my own uh, obsession with with London at night, but I really do think it is there, and I think it you know runs through the prophetic books, and of course it's 
absolutely central to his very famous poem London in the Songs of, Songs of Innocence and Experience. You're, you're right to, to point to two two things that I, anyway I certainly am interested in, draw, in and draw attention to. One is his involvement, if such it was, in the in the Gordon riots, and the other was was his denunciation of of Tyburn, and the, and the two were of course related. So in 1780, just to recapitulate briefly, he's as a young man in his in his early twenties. He sets off to visit his former master, the man to whom he was apprenticed as an engraver. And he walks up um, sort of St Martin's Lane, I think, up up, um, up Longacre towards Great Queen Street, and he, to his surprise, supposedly gets suddenly tumbled into this crowd, which is raging up towards Newgate on the fifth night of the Gordon of the anti-Catholic riots, and. And apparently, you know, it's completely unstoppable. He gets carried right up to the to the gates of Newgate, and they, the crowd, in an attempt to liberate those who'd been imprisoned on the previous nights for their political activities, for their for demonstrating and rioting, etc., they they fire the fire the prison and and um, and it and it burns down. Now, the the, the accounts of this event are, um, are slightly shrouded in mystery, and it's not absolutely clear that it's not an apocryphal. Event, but anyway, it's an important legend. I think um, he didn't participate directly in the riots. By but by this time, incidentally, they they were not just anti-Catholic riots. They were not just reactionary riots. Um, they also, you know, they involved by the fifth night, you know, firing the Bank of England, etc., as well as other prisons. So they were an attack on the state and on the economy, as well as on the uh, these liberalising pro-Catholic laws. And with all of that, of course, he had considerable sympathy, not least because of his absolutely um, obdurate, adamantine hatred of the regime of Tyburn. Um, and, you know, various Newgate rioters were hanged at Tyburn, now, now this, today the site of Marble Arch in the, in the days following and the weeks following the riots, and he would have been very much aware of that. Um, but he loathed what the... Historian Peter Linebauer has called the thanatocracy of the of the eighteenth century. You know, this was the this was the era in which property laws were brought in and enshrined as they never had done them before, and 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 people were criminalised and punished in really quite extreme ways by hanging, for example, on a large scale for even the most minor infringements of property. So capitalism was really shoring up its um, its you know its its bases, its its foundations, and 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 policing itself extremely aggressively in this period. And Blake recoiled from that. He recoiled from the whole culture of Tyburn, the whole culture of discipline and 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 punishment in in the late eighteenth century. And his poetry, the prophetic books, I think, are absolutely full of images, well, of of burning prisons, of of flaming riots, but also of a, of a kind of of the horror of the darkness and barbarism of this supposedly enlightenment culture, enlightenment civilization in England and London in, in the 18th century, um, but also the possibility almost homeopathically of um, using the night as a way of dispelling what in the book, um, I suppose echoing Georges Bataille, I call the black sun of enlightenment, this great pall that the enlightenment despite its claim to be illuminating, um, 
is you know imposes on on the city so he sees darkness i think both as both as a product a corrupt product of the enlightenment and perhaps as a means of of evading the surveillance and the transparency of of the enlightenment and of and of light i want to um give a sense of of exactly how Blake's poetry about London, a very famous poem, differs from the other kind of poetry that might be written at the time by, 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 someone, uh, by someone encountering London from a very different perspective. So the, the, the Blake poem runs, uh, I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. In every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every ban, the mind-forged manacles I hear. How the chimney-sweepers cry every blackening church appalls, and the hapless soldier's sigh runs in blood down palace walls. But most through midnight streets I hear how the youthful harlots curse, blast the newborn infant's tear, and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. That's from uh, Songs of Experience. Um, and at more or less, uh, sort of slightly later, uh, you get uh, Sir Humphrey Davy, who is a sort of doyen of the Enlightenment, really, um, come into London and, um, and say, uh, and write these lines. Uh, he's just returning from a, a sort of picturesque tour of the Alps um, and is uh, he's very shortly going to do lots of exciting things for the Royal Institution and the Royal Society. Um, he's, he writes, Such art thou, mighty in thy power and pride. No city, on, no city of the earth with thee can vie. Along thy streets still flows the unceasing tide of busy thousands. E'en thy misty sky breathes life and motion, and the subject waves that wash thy lofty arches bear the wings of earthly commerce, where the winds, thy slaves, speed the rich tribute to the ocean kings. So here you have a poet who is very much of the day, uh, very much of the regime of the day, sort of talking in those sort of really, actually what, what, what to me now sounds rather sinister about sort of uh, the subject waves. Um, so the waves are the sort of subject of this sort of commercial regime. Um, and indeed the, the winds as the slaves of commerce. So I think this is really very telling, actually, that, that, that uh, you know, even in terms of the... the uh, the, the, the poetry itself, there's something that, that feels very dark about the, the Blake poem, not just in, in terms of its subject matter, but, but, but it, it, it feels like a nighttime poem. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And that's a really interesting juxtaposition, I think. I mean, you know, in effect, what Davy is celebrating is what Blake calls the chartered Thames. And he's also celebrating the chartered streets, you know, that busy throng of thousands um, that, you, that you cited. Um, and what Blake is doing in his poem is is unchartering the city. He's unchartering the Thames and above all, he's unchartering the streets. He's walking in such a way that, uh, that he undoes some of the logic of the imperial capital. He undoes some of the logic of a capital which is governed by a capital city which is governed by charters by laws and by the flow of commodities and people commuting um, and he can best do that I think as you've you've indicated at night um, and I think it is I don't think it's been sufficiently noted uh, just 
how important that phrase Midnight Streets is. I mean, it gets cited often enough because it's an extraordinarily evocative one. But it seems to me to indicate that the poem is actually set at night, that the entire poem is set at night. This isn't just a, re- a reference to London at night. It's, it's, the, um, it's the clue that the, the, uh, that the poem itself is set at night because this is the time when the city can, can best be uncharted. It's when the city's depredations become most clear as the size uh, and, and, and the blood on the walls of the churches, etc., indicates it all becomes visible, audible at night. But it's also when the individual, a renegade individual like Blake, uh, gets to uh, interrupt the rhythms of the city, gets to, to uncharter its, its streets. So um, I want to move on and try and think about the city in particular uh, and, and, and think about the way in which sort of a daytime thinking of the city and a nighttime thinking of the city might be different. Um, and I was looking you know, prior to the show and sort of looked up an essay which has always fascinated me and actually always slightly disturbed me. It's an essay by uh, Michel de Certo um, who, who, who writes uh, about looking down at Manhattan from the, the 107th floor of the World Trade Center, not something that one can do anymore. Um, he, he writes, To be lifted to the summit of the World Trade Center is to be carried away by the city's hold. One's body is no longer crisscrossed by the streets that bind and rebind it following some law of their own. It is not possessed either as user or used by the sounds of all its many contrasts or by the frantic New York traffic. His altitude transforms him into voyeur. It places him at a distance. It changes an enchanting world into a text. It allows him to read it, to become a solar eye, a god's regard. So this is sort of the, the, the sort of utopian city planner almost sort of looking down at, at the city in that sense. And it, it reminds me of a passage um, in Henry Mayhew, who is a Victorian journalist and really astonishing astonishing social sort of writes this really huge uh, 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 book uh, book series of books uh, London Labour and the London Poor Uh, and you know there's a passage in which he he sort of ascends the dome of St Paul's and sort of looks out um, and sees London stretching before him with buses no bigger than tin toys he says and dense streams of busy little men hurrying this way and that I I wonder about this this perspective the kind of this God's regard which is very much of course a thing of the daytime Um, it's very much a thing that's only possible uh, uh, during the day Um, and, and, and I wonder whether there's a problem here, whether there's a political problem here, whether there's a, a, a problem of orientation, um, that when one thinks in terms of the city, uh, one begins to erase the people who live in it. Uh, you know, you, you, you sort of... You know, this is not a thing that Mayhew does in, in general. Mayhew's very attentive to the, to, the, you know, the, to, to the people of the city in a way that, that, that virtually no one else is, save, in fact, Dickens, I think, in, in many ways. Um, but but I wonder if this is something that that, that affects a certain strain uh, of English literature in particular, and literature about cities, literature, literature about sort of uh, you know uh, one's relation to cities, about uh, you know, the, the sort of broad span of sort of psychogeographic literature or whatever that has a tendency really to be interested in in in, in the writer and the city, but not so much um, in the other people of the city. Um, yeah, that's an interesting claim um yeah i mean i suppose deserto though is i mean he's also affirming a, a, a street level kind of walking a grammar of the city which is only knowable and and articulable through the actual process of of walking and that 
in a sense is part of a you know a broader we might say psychogeographic I mean it's slightly anachronistic mm. to use that term in relation to Certo, but anyway and, and anyway the, the the term has become rather kind of you know adulterated and overused and so I don't I don't want to kind of you know go into too much into that but you know w- which involves nonetheless a rejection of of the of of the you know again it's an enlightenment disposition of this perspective uh, this panoramic perspective which implies and Foucault's always a, a presence in these kinds of debates a you know a surveillance a panoptic uh, comprehension of of the city um, and you know walking you know pedestrianism from the Enlightenment on, onwards, you know, whether in the day or the night, is a means to some extent of evading of evading that uh, regime of control and, and, and of Enlightenment and, and, and surveillance, I think. Um, at night, perhaps all the more so, as you've implied, because, because one's vision, one's capacity for some kind of panoptic or panoramic sense of the city is all the more impaired. Um, and, you know, there are many fewer people around at night so in fact when one does encounter people there's there's almost no getting away from from the, the you know the tension that it's an interpersonal tension one you know one doesn't think of in certainly in the in the depths of the night in the dead of night one one doesn't think of human beings other people in the city in terms of crowds to nearly the same mm. extent except under exceptional circumstances like you know riots for example um like the ones of a few years ago um so so there is a sense in which yeah one encounters humanity in the streets at night on the on the level of the pavement in a way that isn't possible in a in a panoptic panoramic perspective one that today incidentally uh, thinking of sort of extending the um you know deserters uh image and 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 thinking of, of mayhew who ascended balloons of in balloons of course to look at look at london one which today is often inscribed in the views from police helicopters uh surveillance cameras which provide okay not panoramic but nonetheless oddly dehumanizing alienating distanced views of of people who occupy the the streets of the city at at night it's um a, a strange thing i mean i think um hard sometimes to 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 really understand how different a city can be at night and how it can be in the day and it's, and it's something that that we can think historically but it's not always necessarily clear about the modern city um and partly you know that there's there's the the question of street lighting and how this changes and the, the kind of thing you're talking about in the book um it, it always sort of amazed me. There's a, a line in, in a Thackeray essay about Mayhew, and he says, "Sort of uh, the grief, struggle, strange adventures um, depicted exceed anything that any of us could imagine." Yes, and these wonders and terror have been lying by your door and mine ever since we had a door of our own. We had to go but a hundred yards off and see for ourselves, but we never did. And I mean, someone like Thackeray probably wouldn't go walking around at night. It's not his kind of thing. Um, but, but this does suggest to me that there is a, a kind of, a, you know, a, a sort of a secret knowledge of the city that, that persists in, in someone like Mayhew and in particular in someone like Dickens, um, who, who is very much a, a, a night walker, perhaps a night walker par excellence. Um, and so perhaps we could talk a little bit um, about, about that particular kind of night walking that Dickens undertakes, which is, you know, it, it's it's 
um, in, in one sense, a sort of pathological uh, night walking. And, and this, I think, is the other thread in the book, right, which is that quite a lot of these people are, are, are either disturbed um, or, or have something that 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 uh, uh, that that that, that uh, means that the balm of hurt minds no longer no longer attends them. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. There is there is a sense throughout the the book and the reading that I did for the book that that walking at night can be a can act as a kind of narcotic. Uh, that the, the city at night represents a refuge for people who are dispossessed or disturbed or in some way radically marginalised by the culture of the city they inhabit or they've just immigrated to. Um, and Dickens is really the most neurotic uh, of of all the Nightwalkers, I suppose. Uh, you know, he's far from the sort of benign, benevolent figure that we, we often think, think of him. Um, I mean, people have not long known that, you know, there's a great streak, fat streak of darkness in his novels, you know, particularly the, the later novels. But um, but the night and the night in the city in particular is, is, is crucial to his conception of himself, I think, throughout his life uh, and particularly at moments of acute personal crisis, you know, when he is worried particularly about money, about getting into debt, something that throws up his own anxieties about his background. His father, of course, was was imprisoned for debt. Um, when his uh, father dies, when his marriage breaks down, at these crucial moments and at others, for example, when he's particularly anxious about the, uh, the, the writing he's doing, when he's uh, under the, the cosh of the serial publication of his novels, in other words, when he's most um, sharply susceptible to the, uh, you know, the industrialised rhythms of literary production in, in the 19th century, he, he goes out onto the streets almost in exile from himself in order to find some kind of narcotic relief. Um, but um, he there encounters... Uh, individuals who uh, teach him a lot about the city and teach him a lot about his own self, I think. And he finds that he's, particularly in his great essay, Night Walks from 1860, um, he he identifies with a, with a kind of community, albeit a very atomised community, who inhabit the streets at night. And he knows that he's marginal to them um, because he's ultimately far more privileged than them. But he nonetheless feels a really quite moving sense of solidarity with them. He identifies this atomized community in terms of what he calls the dry rot, um, which is a wonderful phrase um, that, that quite quickly loses its apparently comic quality. Um, and it's really the dry rot is... is it's a characteristic that we, you know, that we often see still today, particularly during recessional times, uh, like like the one we're, we're living through now. People who, um, whether through unemployment, homelessness, or drink, or drugs, or simply unhappiness, at having to struggle so much to subsist and to make their lives work, who who have who've got an air of defeat about them, and who are in a state of sort of terminal spiritual corrosion um and he's he's terrifically moving in his in his account of these these people who he who he meets at night some of them he speaks to on the whole he doesn't though he just very sympathetically observes them and and seems to understand them um in one of the the most sort of starting passages of the book actually i think you, you quite a line from a hegel lecture 
We see this night when we look a human being in the eye, looking into a night which turns terrifying, for from his eyes the night of the world hangs out towards us. In context here is to do with the encounter with other human beings, much like you've just been talking about. And it struck me that there are, you know, these, these sort of three forces at work in much of the book, the night walker, the city, and those who share the night streets with us. Uh, and these latter sort of friend, foe, or simply you know, the object of sort of speculation or sort of you know, rather crass speculation in the case of someone like De Quincey or, you know, rather more sort of sensitive and involved uh, sort of uh, observation on the part of Dickens. But there seems something, and there's something in, in that Hegel line, there's something perpetually sort of risky about them, sort of the, a kind of uh, nihilification uh, you know, risk of, of dereliction that spills out from them. So, so this, it seems to me, is, is, is certainly one way of thinking uh, about the kind of encounters uh, that, that one would have at night. Are there other ways of thinking about it? Are there other kinds of encounter one, one can have at night where, where, which don't have that sort of uh, uh, undertow of, uh, uh, of perpetual risk to them? Um, yes, I'm sure there are. I probably underemphasized them in the in in the book. In fact, I mean, clearly, you know, I mean, to an extent, I, I underemphasize the sociability of the night. For example, uh, the possibilities for uh, some kind of collective or communal identification. I mean, I'd have liked to write a book that was a bit more about um, collective activities, political activities at night. It would have been a quite different book, mm. though, so I ended up not being able to write that. And anyway, Brian Palmer, um, a very good socialist, American socialist historian, has written a book, Cultures of Darkness, which covers quite a lot of that that material. I mean, my book is ended up being a book, a rather book, that, book that's rather individualist in, in focus, which didn't really suit me politically. Um, but And it also ended up being rather kind of grim and pessimistic because what I found myself focusing on more and more was was the dead night, as Dickens and, and others called it, was the, you know, the early hours of the morning when the city is at its deadest and when the human beings' circadian rhythms are at their slowest and lowest um, and when, as it were, existentially, we're at our most vulnerable. And one of the... Uh, quotations that I kept coming back to and that in a sense speaks to that line from Hegel that, that I quote in relation to Dickens and that you've just cited is a quotation from, from Shakespeare and from and from the Heath scene, the scene on the Heath in, in King Lear, where King Lear, you know, has stripped himself down. He then encounters Ad, Edgar, who's also stripped himself down to his sort of bare bones. Um, and Lear refers to... Uh, man as a poor bare forked animal and yeah so I found myself more and more fixated on the individual the the, the modern human subject as reduced to a, a poor bare forked animal in the conditions of the dead of night and often in the condition of, of homelessness or houselessness as Dickens called it in in the metropolitan city but you're absolutely right there are there are both sort of in you know jovial sociable ways in which one might reconsider the the individual at night and and there are more kind of politically uh inspiring and and, and provocative ways of thinking thinking how one might inhabit the night i mean after all the curfew to go right back to the origins of the curfew in the late 11th century were introduced probably but you know in order to prevent political conspiracies which invariably happened at night i think uh perhaps the the i mean i'm sure anyone who's sort of had 
those nights where it's sort of 4am and all you can think about is you know uh, the destruction of things um you know it's it, 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 there is something you know obvious i think obviously true uh, about about that kind of nighttime what, what i wonder about is you know the if I think about the sort of people of the nighttime, those who are not included in the project of the day, and I wonder if there is a kind of sublimity of of the nighttime um, that is really quite opposite to the kind of you know capitalist sublime of the sort of gr- the vast city and it's sort of teeming with commerce. Whether there is there is some sort of opposite sublimity that that, that appears, you know, in the night hanging out at us from 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 the other's eyes, but but in other ways as well. I wonder if that 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 exists in 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 the stuff you're reading. Yeah, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but um, Dickens. One of his night walks, um, where he walks uh, sort of 30 miles at his usual pace of four miles an hour, and increasingly he describes hallucinating um, under these pretty punishing circumstances. And one of his hallucinations is that he's in the Alps. By this time, he's, he's well out of London, actually. He's walked out of London down to Kent along the old London road towards Dover. But he he keeps thinking that he's in the Alps, that he's ascending a mountain in the Alps. Um, and there, as it were, he's transposed um, He's tr- transposed the conditions of the night in these rather, you know, sort of parochial circumstances onto the very, um, you know, the privileged realm of the, of, of the sublime, you know, the, this, you know the, the Alps, this mountainous region. Um, and so I think, yeah, there is a sense in which the night, the night is in, inherently... Sublime that there's something uh, awesome and and fear-inducing about it, um, as well as strange and wonderful, and and there's something also ultimately unrepresentable about it. Yes, we have uh, three minutes left. I guess uh, the question to end with is: We now live in an era of street lighting. We have it's very difficult to walk around the city and feel that it's nighttime really fully nighttime in the way they would have been historically possible are night walks of this kind still possible uh, and would they are they useful i i think they are i think they're both possible and useful necessary and and uh, important i mean of course it has to be said that it remains shockingly a male privilege this kind of n- nocturnal Activity. Women are excluded from walking the city at night um, in in ways that men simply aren't. Um, they're um, you know they're they're, they're more marginalised. They're more vulnerable. Uh, they're more liable to being identified as being employed in you know, nefarious activities above all prostitution than than men. So without wanting in any way to sort of finesse or, or smooth over that um, very important point, I'd say that. It is still possible. And actually, the night for all the 24-hour culture of the city today, much vaunted and boasted, does remain in, you know, in, the, in the dead hours, in the, at three or four in the morning, a very, very strange and quite lonely place. OK, I think that's a good place to leave it. Matthew Beaumont, thank you very much for joining us this week. And Night Walking is out from Verso Books now. I recommend it very much. Uh, we will be back, same time, same place, next week. <laughs>